Well, I bring you greetings from the Lees Chapel, which is soon to become Lapworth Community Church. We're joining the Community Church Club and we're changing our name sometime in September. So greetings to you from Lapworth and the church there. It really is good to be with you, a privilege to be sharing God's word and maybe to be sharing with you at this particular season in the life of your church. I know that you're working through something of your mission statement, what you want to be as a church, what you feel God in his word has called you to be. And really this afternoon, we're thinking about the third aspect of your mission statement, which is about telling the gospel, sharing Jesus Christ with the people around us. And maybe out of the four aspects of your vision statement, you would say, that's the hardest thing. It's hard, isn't it, to witness to your friends and family, to your neighbours. It's hard to stick your neck out and to share the gospel with those around you. Well, hopefully this afternoon, the passage that we're looking at will help you. It will help you as we think about how to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about how to be his witnesses in the world. So it would be helpful if you had that passage open before you. We are going to be examining the second half of the passage from verse 16 onwards, uh, but it was helpful that it was read um, to put it there into context. And really just to say what the book of 2 Corinthians is about, it's the culmination of a long and complex history between the Apostle Paul and the church there in Corinth. We don't have time to go into that long, complicated history, but suffice it to say that the book of 2 Corinthians is essentially about Paul defending his apostolic ministry. It seems that there were some false apostles who had infiltrated the church there in Corinth and they would be basically saying, follow us. We we are the apostles. We are the ones with the true gospel. You should follow us, not that, not that charlatan Paul. And so Paul is writing to Corinthians to say, no, I am. I am a genuine apostle. I am a, a, an apostle with a genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so he's wanting the, the Corinthians to once again align with him, to side with him, rather than these other apostles. And obviously by aligning with Paul, they're not just simply aligning with Paul, but they're aligning with the Christ that Paul preaches. They're aligning with the genuine Jesus. And so that's what this book of 2 Corinthians is all about. And the passage that we're looking at this afternoon is all about Paul's ministry, the ministry that he had been given by God and the motive for his ministry, what drove him in that ministry. And hopefully those things will be helpful for us as well this afternoon. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it extremely easy to get caught up in things, to become slightly obsessed, whether that's about a particular sporting competition or a program that's on television, or maybe a composer that I've recently got into. My personality is such that I'm regularly having to restrain myself from getting swept away and sucked in by various things. I don't know if you are the same. Now, sometimes, of course, it's okay, isn't it, to, to get caught up in things. To one degree or another, I'm sure we all got caught up in last weekend's jubilee, jubilation. We, we were involved in that, weren't we? Maybe you even had street parties and you found yourself being swept along with everyone else in those celebrations. Only the very grumpiest of Rep- Republicans would have begrudged us such festivity and fun. But, but sometimes aren't the things that we get caught up in less innocent 
and more insidious than that. Indeed, as Christians, can't we sometimes find ourselves being caught up in what the culture around us is caught up in? We live in the world and if we're not careful without even realising it, we begin to look like the world. How we spend our time and our money. Those unspoken prejudices and desires that we hide from others and we harbour in our hearts, it all looks remarkably worldly. Barely dissimilar to what we see around us. Well, here in this passage that we have just read and that we're looking at this afternoon, we see the complete opposite, where we see how Paul was completely uncaught up in the the wants and the ways of the world. You see, Paul's life was not only cross-shaped, it was completely cross-saturated. How Paul thought and and how he felt his attitude to and treatment of those around him, all of it was transformed and inspired by Christ's sacrificial love, by, by his voluntary death for and on behalf of others. In the section before that we just read, but we won't be considering this afternoon, in that section we saw, uh, we see Paul's transformed attitude, and Jim alluded to it at the beginning of the service. Paul was constrained, he was compelled, as he puts it there in verse 14, by Christ's love. A love that was displayed preeminently by his his death-destroying love for all. Well, this afternoon we're going to consider the fundamental difference that the cross had made to Paul's outlook and his occupation. Because of the cross, how Paul saw people and how Paul saw his job was nothing like how the world often sees those things. And as we consider this fundamental difference in our outlook and our occupation, may God expose where and how the cross still needs to to shape you and I. It's my prayer this afternoon that he would expose our blind spots, our spiritual blind spots, that he would uncover those areas in which we have been inculturated, entangled by the sinful assumptions and unspoken expectations of our fallen culture. So that's where we're going this afternoon, looking at Paul's transformed outlook and his transformed occupation. So firstly, here in this passage, we see something, I think, of Paul's transformed outlook. Paul saw people not through the lens of looks and externals, but through the prism of their spiritual standing. Race, and class, religious or social background, none of it mattered. What, what mattered to Paul was whether or not people were in Christ. In short, Paul viewed the world in an unashamedly, unmistakably, unworldly way. We are taught these days, aren't we, to judge superficially. These days we are taught to evaluate on the basis of image alone. That's what TikTok is all about. That's what Instagram is all about. Facebook, looking at people, looking at them just as they come across in their appearance and to evaluate them on that basis alone. As such, isn't it true that our estimations of the people around us can sometimes often be nothing more than skin deep? Maybe you see someone covered in tattoos or their faces encrusted with metal. I'm always surprised at the the level that people are willing to go to today, the things that they are willing to put into their faces. 
Maybe you see someone with a headscarf or a, or a shaved head. Maybe you see someone who's sleek and attractive or kitted out in Gucci and you make certain assumptions about them. We all do that, don't we? Of course, there's nothing new about making such surface-level appraisals of people. The Victorians, for instance, were adept at it. They even turned it into a science, the science of physiognomy. Uh, They believe, the Victorians believe, that your appearance, the size of your nose, the closeness of your eyes indicated your character. So if your face looked shifty and dodgy, it was because you were shifty and dodgy. But the art of slicing humanity up according to appearance is even ancienter still. It goes back even beyond the Victorians. As far back as the first century, there were intruders in Corinth who, verse 12, took pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. See, these these apostolic pretenders, these opponents of, of Paul and his ministry, they gloried in the outward. They prized appearances above all. But Paul was having none of it. His outlook, the the way that he viewed and dealt with all, had been transformed by the one who loved and died for all. Verse 16, we see that, don't we? So from now on, and we will think later about what that now on refers to, but Paul says, verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. More literally, we view no one according to the flesh, We view no one according to externals. Paul here seems to be contrasting himself with the false apostles who did do that. Who who made judgments based solely on appearance. We get the impression through this letter as you read to Corinthians that these false apostles, they made assumptions and they, they came to conclusions about Paul simply because of how he looked and how he came across. History tells us, I think, that Paul wasn't particularly big. He was weak in stature. Apparently, he was unimpressive in his presence when he showed up at Corinth. People looked at Paul and thought, is this it? That the man who writes such weighty letters, and yet he's so mild and timid in person. We read really about Paul's so-called uninspiring speech, that he was uncommanding in the way that he spoke. And because of all of those things, these false apostles disparaged Paul as an apostle. They said, you can't be an apostle because you don't look like an apostle. But Paul here refuses to play these false apostles at their own game. Unlike them, he regards no one, as he says, according to such worldly standards. He views no one on the basis of superficial observations about their physique or their demeanor or their looks. Whether they're dynamic or charming or charismatic or able, or whether they're dull and and introverted and unimposing and largely forgetful, none of that matters to Paul. That's not the lens through which he sees people. That doesn't determine how he regards and relates to them. Now, I must admit this afternoon that I am often more like the false apostles in this matter than I am Paul. And although you may not care to confess it, maybe you are as well. Isn't it true that we are so prone to make snap judgments And to form opinions and to develop prejudices about people simply on the basis of their appearance, simply because of how they look. 
As Paul puts it here, we regard them according to the flesh, we regard them according to external factors. Whether that's their weight, or their wealth, or their wardrobe, or their class, or their culture. We may not even be conscious that we're doing it, but purely because of those external factors, we respond to certain individuals differently than we do to others. We adjust our attitude and approach to them because like Paul's opponents, all we can see is flesh. All we notice is surface. There's a video online entitled American versus Muslim Bag Experiments. In the video, two girls ask strangers, they go around, I think it's in New York, and they ask strangers to look after their bags. Now, one is dressed as a typical American And the other girl is dressed in a full hijab. And you can guess, can't you, which one the majority of the strangers said yes to and which one they said no to. People were happy enough to look after the bag of someone who looked a lot like them. They weren't so happy to do that for someone who didn't look like them. What is that? That's prejudice based on appearance. That is responding differently to people simply because of their dress. Now, whilst I hope this afternoon that we as God's people would never fall into such blatant discrimination, I'm sure we are nevertheless all still guilty, guilty of regarding according to the flesh, of looking at the world in a worldly way. So here's a bit of a litmus test for you. Perhaps you walk past someone who looks like they've just walked off the set of of Jeremy Kyle. Immediately, what is your mind doing? Well, maybe it's appraising them. Maybe it's making assumptions about them that are nowhere near as favorable as those you'd make about others. Perhaps even a certain amount of scorn and disdain arises in your heart. You don't know them. Yet just from taking one look at them, you have written them off. You have made a prejudiced assessment of them based solely on their externals, based solely on how they look. Perhaps for you, your struggle is not so much with snobbery, but as it has sometimes been for me with inverse snobbery. I always laugh that when I think about where I am, where God has placed me in a in an area of affluence. I come from Woolwich, southeast London, which is pretty much as, as rough as you can get. And sometimes when you come from those kinds of rougher backgrounds, you can be suffering and struggling with inverse snobbery. You carry a a chip on your shoulder, you see signs of wealth and affluence and you are tempted to unfairly dismiss and deride those people. I've had to learn that, to resist the urge to treat the upper crust as though somehow they were less deserving and worthy of my love than the so-called salt of the earth. And so in some way, one way or another, all of us know what it is to do, what Paul had determined not to do here in this passage, and that is to regard people from a worldly point of view. To our shame, unlike him, there are times when how we view others owes more to the culture around us than it does to Christ. So how do we change? That's the question, isn't it? How do we change? How do we not view people in that way? How do we stop viewing people superficially through the lens of appearance or age or gender or or whatever it is? Well, I think it's not simply enough to start adhering to that adage that we all know so well. Don't judge a book by its cover. We know that saying, don't we? 
There's nothing distinctly Christian about doing that, about not judging people by their looks. There are plenty of films, for instance, like Legally Blonde and Aaron Brockovich that, that make that very point, that say don't, don't look at people and judge them on the basis of how they appear and how they dress. There's nothing Christian about that. No, no, if we want to, to like Paul, be truly transformed in our outlook, in the way that we see the world, we must go deeper. We must be willing to view everyone through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Christ's love and death for all. That's implied, I think, there in verse 16. Coming back now to this from now on. Verse 16, look with me there. So from now on, Paul says, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And we ask the question, don't we, from when on? Paul says, from now on, we don't regard people in this way. And we ask the question, well, from when on? What what changed in Paul's life to stop him looking at the world in a worldly way? Well, it's arguably from when Paul came became convinced, verse 14, that one died for all. Paul's logic, I think, seems to be this. If Christ died for all, at least all without distinction, if not all without exception, then he must view that all very differently. He can no longer see that all the way that the world sees that all. He must see them as individuals who are loved by Christ, those for whom he laid down his life. In other words, this afternoon, I think Paul is saying this. When Paul looked at people, he didn't see physical appearance, but he saw spiritual needs. He penetrated beneath the the seen and the surface to that which is unseen, internal and eternally significant. He, He saw people's spiritual state before God. As I said, I grew up in southeast London, and when I was 17, I played for a men's football team. It wasn't the most pleasant of experience at times. Not only were a lot of the guys on that team older than me, they were also louder and lewder. You hear of locker room banter, don't you? Well, there was plenty of locker room banter going on in that football team. As such, despite my real heart for evangelism at the time, when I looked at those guys, that's all that I could see. I struggled to not regard them according to the flesh. I struggled to get past the the bravado and the bawdiness to see them as the all for whom Christ died. Perhaps there are people in your life like that. You look at them and all you can see is their language, the words that they use that you would never use. Maybe you look at their lifestyles, the the decisions that they make. Maybe you look at their religion, which is very different to yours. That's all you can see. You can't look past them to see their dire spiritual need. You can't look past all of that to see that they are one of the all for whom Christ died in order to meet that need. It's the opposite of Jesus, isn't it? Beside the well with the Samaritan woman. She was someone who had everything going against her. She was the wrong gender for that day. She was the wrong religion. She was a Samaritan and her past was checkered at best. And how did Jesus respond to her with all of her cultural and religious and moral baggage? Well, he penetrated through her her gender, penetrated through her religion and her past. And he perceived her need for living water. 
He peeled back the outward so that he could expose and minister to the inward. And surely if we're not to view the world in a worldly way, that's what we need to do. We need to see every single person that we come into contact with, not for who they are or or, or what they're like or where they're from or what they've done. We need to see them as someone standing in desperate need of the cross. In desperate need of Christ's love and his forgiveness. I recently came across the story of Niella Rose. Niella Rose was once a renowned high priestess of goddess worship who was involved in blood sacrifices and medianship. But, but now, by God's grace, she's a, she's a born-again Christian. It's a wonderful testimony, isn't it, to the power of the gospel to transform a person's life. But the question that I thought to myself as I heard about her story and as I thought about this message was this. How many Christians, I wonder, before her conversion, saw her through the lens of the cross? Would I have? Would you have this afternoon? If we were to have looked at her then, would we have seen anything other than the flesh? Would we have seen anything other than the trappings of paganism? The occult rituals that she was involved in at that time in her life. It's hard, isn't it, not to do that. To to not view people simply based on external realities. Thankfully, Paul in this passage himself freely admits that. When he says there in verse 16, he said that he used to regard Christ in that way. He used to regard Christ according to the flesh. See, there was once a time in Paul's life when, when he looked at Jesus, he didn't see a saviour, he saw a blasphemer. He didn't see the son of God, he saw a sinner under the curse of God. But Paul's eyes were open to see that all is not as it appears. And not just when it comes to Christ, but when it comes to all. There is more to people than meets the eye. There is more that matters than mere flesh and blood and bank balance and behavior and background. What matters ultimately is whether or not people are right with God. Whether or not they, like Niella Rose, are in Christ. We read about that here in this passage, don't we? About being in Christ. To, to be in Christ, as Paul said, is to, to undergo An internal transformation. How does he put it there in the words of verse 17? It is to become a new creation. That's an experience that's unquantifiable in worldly terms. When you became a Christian, you didn't start to glow. You didn't start to grow. doesn't improve your complexion or reverse your hair loss, does it? Becoming a Christian, it doesn't change your outward nature. It doesn't change anything about your flesh. But Paul says... Being in Christ, coming to him, it's an experience that verse 17 in spiritual terms involves the passing away of the old and the supernatural arrival of the new. That's what matters. What matters when we look at people, are they in Christ? Are they new creations or are they not? It's not about this flesh, it's not about this body. No, it is about the complete overhaul, not of the outward And the perceptible and the seen. But rather it is about the renovation of the inward, of the imperceptible and unseen. So this afternoon that was Paul's transformed outlook. Paul had come to see Christ and his cross for what they really were. Not simply for what they appeared to be. 
And because of that, he had to start seeing people in the same way. No matter how the world saw them, he had to see them as they really were, as sinners in need of a saviour. Part of this all for, for whom Christ died, those for whom he laid down his life. And perhaps as we seek to emulate Paul, this week this should be our ambition to, like him, don gospel glasses, to put on cross-tinted spectacles. This week, why don't you pray to God if you are a Christian here this afternoon. Pray that you would see the people around you not as old or young, not as rich or poor, not as middle class or as working class, but as souls needing saving, fallen creatures who require spiritual recreation in Christ. So that's Paul's transformed outlook. Secondly, we're going to see more briefly Paul's transformed occupation. We're going to see how Paul was committed to fulfilling his calling rather than to chasing a career. Someone I know recently exclaimed how they absolutely love their job and actually every day they look forward to going to, to work and they even went so far as to say that they missed not going in over the bank holiday weekend. I wonder if any of you were saying that last weekend. Oh, I wish, of all the places I wish I was in work right now, the sun is shining, the barbecue's on, but I wish I was at work. No, most of us, I suspect, are nowhere near as passionate about our nine-to-fives as that individual is. Even those involved in full-time Christian ministry can find themselves at time, times grinding through rather than reveling in their roles. And so whoever we are, whatever we do for a living, it can be sapping or, or stressful or tedious. And, and so we might dismissively describe our work like this. It is just a job. It's just a job just so that I can make a living. But as Christians, whether we're working or retired, we have something far greater than a career. We have a calling. Not necessarily an easy calling, but it is a glorious calling. It is eternally significant. And it is that calling that Paul introduces to us here in this passage. A calling which in every conceivable way is more than just a job. So look with me again at verse 18. I know we've only covered this verse. We need to speed up a little bit if we're to get through this passage. But verse 18, Paul says all of this, all this glorious spiritual transformation that he's just spoken about, all of it is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. First and foremost, the calling that Paul had received was a calling to God himself. Such a calling not only came before anything else in sequence, it was above everything else in consequence. Being reconciled to God, being at peace with him rather than at hostility, was Paul's paramount and primary need. And despite Paul's fierce and flagrant opposition to God, God in his immeasurable grace met that need, didn't he? What does Paul go on to say? He reconciled us, I think Paul is talking about him as an apostle, he's using the apostolic we, like the royal we, he reconciled us to himself through Christ. And if you're a Christian here this afternoon, that is the calling of which you are an undeserving recipient, a humble, grateful beneficiary. You were the offending party, weren't you? 
You were the one who was going against God as I was those many years ago. But God was the one who took the initiative to repair the damage that was done by your sin. He was the one who made the approach. When you fall out with your wife, maybe, husbands or parents, when you do something wrong against your children, who is the onus on to repair that relationship? Well, it's on the person who has sinned. It's on the person who has broken the, the peace and the harmony between those two parties. But, but with God, God is the one who makes the approach. He is the one who takes the costly steps necessary to bring about a state of friendship and harmony between you, the aggravator, and him, the aggrieved. Just as he did with Paul, God reconciled you to himself through Christ. So that's where Paul's calling began and where ours begins with God reconciling us to himself. He doesn't have to, we don't deserve to be reconciled, but through the cross of Jesus, that is what he does. But here in this passage, we see not only was Paul a monument to God's reconciling mercy, he was also called to be a minister of it. So look there at verse 18. Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now you would think, wouldn't you, if it's God's job to reconcile us to himself, that we would have absolutely no part to play in that process. Maybe you think, well, God doesn't need us to act as go-betweens. He doesn't need us to to hold out an olive branch to those who are bent on rebelling against him. Surely that is what Christ came to do. He is the mediator. He is the one who came not only to initiate the heavenly peace process, but to actually ensure its success. But just as governments need willing ambassadors to announce the offer of amnesty, say a government has decided... It's time now for these criminals, for these people who are corrupt to be, to be welcomed in. There is, there is official pardon for them all. They, they need, don't they, ambassadors to go and say, your crimes are not counted against you anymore. Return. You are no longer in exile. You are free to come home. Well, just as governments need those ambassadors, God needs, or rather he chooses to use individuals who will let the world know, verse 19, the greatest message in the world. He needs ambassadors or uses ambassadors who will let the world know that he, God, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Paul is saying God has done absolutely everything already that is necessary to to deal with the, the sin and the animosity that separates us, that alienates us from God at the cross. He smashed down the, the wall of hostility that humanity has erected against him. He satisfied justice. He exhausted his wrath so that we, so that you would be free to return to him without fear, without having to dread the retaliation. The retribution that your conscience screams, I deserve before a holy God. But the question is, if nobody knows that, if nobody knows what God has done, how will anybody do anything about it? How will they come if they don't know that they can come? Well, that's where Paul comes in and also you and I. 
So Paul says that he was a minister of reconciliation who had, verse 19, look there, been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. He was, verse 20, an ambassador for Christ, someone through whom God made his appeal. Just as he does here with the Corinthians, he would implore people, be reconciled to God. Your rebellion's been dealt with, your sin has been paid for, therefore be at peace with him. Put down your arms and return to the God who made you. That was Paul's job. Now, as an apostle, you could argue that Paul's calling was unique in that regard. Paul was a spokesperson for God in a way that you and I will never be. But at the same time, wouldn't we say that like him, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are monuments of reconciling mercy. But more than just being monuments of it, we are messengers of reconciling mercy. We have been reconciled and now our message is to to the world, be reconciled as well. This week, two events graced, or depending on your sensibilities, disgraced our TV screens. One was sporting, England versus Germany, and England versus Italy last last night. Not too bad. One all in both of those cases. The other event was social, or should that be anti-social? Again, depending on how you see those things. The launch of Love Island. Some of you maybe haven't even heard of Love Island. Maybe some of you are already engrossed in it. But two things that happened this week, whether you realised it or not... Now, there are some people, aren't there, who would love, love to be England manager. And there are some people who would love to win Love Island. Others, of course, however, would balk at the very thought of being offered either of those possessions. The mere suggestion would leave them bolting for the door. I think it's a bit like that when it comes to the calling we have as Christians. When it comes to this occupation that that Paul is speaking about in this passage of being Christ's ambassadors, it is polarizing. Some Christians, and maybe you're one of them, praise God if you are, you relish the idea, I get to be an evangelist. Maybe you wake up on a Monday morning and you think, I get to share Jesus. I don't have to, I get to. I'm sure you are a very rare breed. Because others, and I'm sure this is true for most of us, we recoil and we retreat from it. Maybe that's you this afternoon, being an ambassador for Christ. Imploring people, be reconciled to God. Letting the world know that, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Doing all of that, you would say, it's not really for me. That's probably my default position. Evangelism, oh! It's hard and it's it's challenging. Can't somebody else just do my job for me? I'm more than happy mostly to stand up before people like you and to, to speak a little bit, but to go out into the world, to share the gospel, it is difficult. But as we study here, Paul's transformed occupation in this passage, his unswerving commitment to fulfilling his calling, don't we see that there is a tremendous dignity and glory to being an ambassador of Christ? As it was for Paul, the ministry of reconciliation is given to us by whom? It's given to us by God. He is the one who has committed to us this gracious message of amnesty and mercy. People around us, I'm sure, they take pride in representing some prestigious organisation in their work or in working for some high-profile client, maybe even some people involved in the Jubilee celebrations last week, and they thought, we are representing the Queen. But as Christ's ambassadors, we are serving 
and speaking on behalf of the most royal of all royals. We get to represent the one who is supreme in splendor and sovereign in position and power. Christian, that is the one that you are an ambassador of. Not only has he reconciled you to himself, he has entrusted you with the privileged task of being his agent, being a mouthpiece through whom he makes his appeal to this world. No earthly promotion, no human accolade could ever come close to the glory and the joy and fulfillment of God reconciling others to himself through you, through your witness, through your willing proclamation of the sinless Savior who has come to bear our unrighteousness so that he might bestow on sinners like us his righteousness. Perhaps this afternoon you're, you're not chasing the glory of winning the World Cup. You're not going to do that ever. You're not chasing the glory of winning a reality TV show. You're, you're not beach body ready for that now. But you are maybe chasing the glory of career. Or you're chasing the glory of status or you're chasing the glory of being seen as something and thought of as special. But that glory, can I tell you, pales in comparison to the glory of being used by God. Of being an instrument through which he reconciles the lost to himself, transforms more and more ruined lives, making them completely new in Christ. There is a glory to being an ambassador. Do you, do you need to remember that this afternoon? There is a glory and a dignity to representing the Lord Jesus. I know my time is going and has probably already gone, but not only is there a glory to our calling, finally, as we begin to draw this message to a close, there is also an urgency. I remember telling my A-level English teacher that I was going to do a gap year with London City Mission, the same gap year that Adrian and I did 15 years ago, rather than attend university. And I think her words to me were, you're a fool. She didn't hold back, that's what she said. She thought I was wasting my time and so she responded by attempting to persuade me not to do that. To to, to do English, of course, instead at university. But in my youthful zeal, zeal that has sadly been sorely lacking at times since, I was having none of it. Even though I knew that study is important and good and often worthwhile, I knew that there was something even more important. I knew that there was something even eternally worthwhile and urgent that I needed to pursue. This afternoon, career and and work and livelihoods, we we need all of that, don't we? There is is dignity in our jobs. There is value in those things. To, To paraphrase Paul, if you won't work, then you don't eat. We need those things. But at the same time, surely we would have to say that fulfilling our roles as ambassadors is something to be supremely prioritized and passionately pursued. Being committed to our calling is critical, more so even than getting ahead and forging success in the workplace. Again, if what matters eternally is whether people are in Christ or not, whether they are reconciled to God or not, what could matter more than being gospel ambassadors? What could matter more than desiring and urging that people receive God's grace? And not to do so in vain as it seems the Corinthians were in danger of doing here. So here's a question as we draw our time to a close. By God's grace, is that what you are seeking to be? A gospel ambassador? 
a representative of Jesus Christ wherever you are? And is that what you're seeking to do, to desire the people around you to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus? Are you burdened by the urgency of your call? Do you daily feel the weight of the spiritual need of every single man and woman and boy and girl around you without Christ? The good news, as Paul tells the Corinthians and tells us there in verse 2, is that uh, then as now is the time of God's favour. Now is the, the time in which he hears the lost cry for mercy. Now is the day of salvation, the day in which he helps and saves. But one day that period of grace will be over. Forgiveness will give way to judgment and salvation to justice for all those without Christ, which is why now is the time. Now is the day to make it our occupation to proclaim Christ in word and deed to make his name known to the all for whom he died to save. May God help us then to heed this call. To, like Paul, be transformed in our outlook, the way that we see the world, and in our occupation, may he help us to not only see people through the lens of the cross, but may he help us to long that people would come to know the love and the forgiveness of the cross.